we have over 100 products now so some of them make more money than others it's always a mix of that and it depends on our again this is all my philosophy is worth nothing if we don't actually make money as a company so welcome to the special edition of outliers you know we started this series uh, by looking at companies that are outliers with uh, with angel list a couple of weeks ago and uh, like we discussed we believe like individuals even companies can be outliers uh, and and that's exactly the case uh, and the reason why i'm sitting here with shridhar vembu uh, who's the founder of zoho uh, shridhar welcome to the podcast again thank you thank you for having me pankaj uh, i mean I, i zoho is outlier for many reasons uh, people some you know have been talking about it quietly over years i have i used to hear chatters uh, throughout my career then that chatter started becoming very dominant then people started talking about uh, your revenues uh, your model your ideology and all that and and now clearly it is at an intersection you know a point where and, I, and that's not just because of your ad campaigns uh, it is too big to ignore so there's a lot of interest in understanding how zoho works uh, the first conversation with you shridhar on this topic uh, i i feel a good way to start is would be to answering why zoho exists and then we can get into how you actually pull it off so actually almost from the early days we saw ourselves i mean zoho exists because in a way india exists in a sense india exists in this way meaning i have always thought that if i were born in a different country in a different circumstance i may not have been even an entrepreneur that's possible that's so actually i wanted to become a professor i wanted to teach i wanted to do research i wanted to publish papers it was my dream but in a way growing up here you grow up and you are surrounded by what you see at some point i know i even at a young age i would ask why are we so poor like that was that was and then once i figured out that the answer is you have to be doing a lot of building a lot of things in order to escape poverty then i am the type of person who says well i mean you can't say other people should be doing it what am i doing about it <laughs> that's why i then i said okay we have to be doing this then then i set aside my interest in publishing papers or doing research and i said let me jump into this so in a sense oh exists because india exists and it continues exists because there is i mean 27 million kids are born in india i keep quoting that number thankfully it's now stable it's not increasing further and further <laughs> i think it's going down it's probably starting to go down and in this state where we are tamil nadu the number of kids is about 1.1.05 1.1 that's actually about the same kids as all of japan just one state and you see the number of companies number of brands you know from japan i mean south korea has about 45 million people and tamil nadu has about 72 million people which brands are popular worldwide <laughs> right but it's not just popular about brands right it is also we 
that correspondingly translates into jobs, incomes, all of that, infrastructure, all of that comes from that. If we are not able to create world-class products and world-class companies here, then we will never have world-class incomes or world-class healthcare, any of that. In other words, we cannot consume if we don't produce. So for me, the, the, you know, for us, the, always the vision for Novo is how do we take this talent pool and do something with it that is worthwhile. So that is why Novo exists. So it's a broad idea. And so that's why the company has reinvented itself. If you see the product line, product portfolio, and we don't feel bound by only this particular market, this particular product. We see it as there is a talent pool and what could we do with the talent pool, given our resources we have in terms of financial, our managerial skills, all of that, what can we do? That is the question we ask. And if we feel that there's an opportunity in the market where we can employ our talent pool well and we have the, the financial resources to compete, we can do that. That's, that's how we have done it. Fascinating. <clears throat> now let's come to the next question, which is, how Zoho works, and I think it would be good to answer that question with two frames. One is around the time you were actually you actually started, and there must have been a way of doing things. And and now, uh, when you are at this stage, take us through uh, both these frames and help us understand what has changed and what hasn't changed. Even as you have become, you are no more a so-called startup in in that sense. So so let us compare these two frames. And, and then try and learn from what has changed and what has not changed when it comes to building products and things like that. Well, what has changed is we have a lot more uh, people and skill sets and experience. So we are able to do, uh, we are able to attempt and, and do more sophisticated products than ever before compared to say 20 years ago. And what has not changed is that, that core, still that sense of vision that was there, that is still there in the company. And that's one reason actually we retain experienced talent well. And we retain that because that mission is still there among our people. So it's a kind of a mission-driven company and people feel that in their things that they share that. And I mean, a lot of our people, I mean, take any of our senior people, they could have easily migrated abroad. That's actually a very common thing in India, right? They didn't have to stay here. I mean, for these set of people we are talking about, why are they staying here? Well, that's because they, at some deep level, they share that mission here. And that matters because if you don't retain that type of a talent, then you cannot create opportunities for the younger talent that doesn't have all the experience and the skills. In other words, if you look at any complicated product, anything that we take an MRI machine. It takes like 10 years to master the technology behind all this, maybe 15 years. And that you have to build up that experience. And you have to, that experience has to work with the inexperience and to, to coach them, guide them, mentor them. All of the, that is how we create this. You know, we absolutely need MRI machines, for example, in this country. We don't produce them. We don't know how to produce them. We don't know how to produce planes. I mean, I'm talking about commercial aircraft. We don't know how to produce bullet trains. We don't know how to produce even ultrasound yet. I mean, there may be some Indians working on these projects abroad, but as a country, we don't. And if we don't, 
then we are only passive consumers of all this. And then the macro effect of that is we run a trade deficit, all of that. But at the micro, micro level, microeconomic level, we don't have enough skills in our workforce. We don't have enough skills because we are exporting the people who get those skills. And therefore, the skills don't uh, you know, deepen here. And then the newer generation gaining those skills. So we don't have enough people who train in those skills. Just simply saying we have colleges is not enough because these are not, I mean, you cannot teach a person how to build an MRI machine in a college. You have to learn by doing it. There are some core concepts, physics, all of that, but ultimately it has to come from the, the deeper you know, process of doing it. And we have not created enough such companies yet. So we want Zoho to be that company. When we are doing it in software, we are not building MRI machines, we are building mail software or a CRM or any of these. But they have the similar complexity. If you go into a world-class email system, it took us actually about 10 years to, to, to really do that well. Now we say that we actually know email well. I wouldn't have said that even five years ago or seven years ago. We were still learning. But to do that, we need the people who are building that mail to gain the expertise and stay on the problem. And in our country, we have not stayed on the problem. We keep exporting. And this is actually also influences the way that the model, all of that, because you know one of the reasons we, we, we have not taken VC is, it's very hard to communicate to VC that it would take 10 years to build an email. And it, they should not accept that. I mean, 10 years is, uh, is a long time for a financier to wait for a return. But it does take 10 years to build an email. It does take more than 10 years to build a spreadsheet, world-class spreadsheet. You know, we use spreadsheets all the time. So then if we, nobody puts a stake in the ground and say we are going to build a world-class spreadsheet here, it'll never be built in India. I wish somebody will put a stake in the ground and say we'll build bullet trains or MRI machines or smartphones or CPUs or all of these. I mean, we are importing 100 billion worth of electronics a year. <laughs> and those are jobs that that we need for our young people. And we don't have those jobs today. Enough of those jobs. So that is why we exist and that is the mission and that's what we are. We are just ongoing mission for us. Take me through uh, the way, for example, you build products or, or you build products and you build products. Uh, how do you identify what problem to solve? And, and why you pick one area over well, another? There is, well, no, infinity of problems. I have, I have sketched already. I mean, if I had another 200 years to live, I have another 200 problems to solve. So that's, you never run out of problems, right? But we have to sequence it. We have to say, like, we didn't start building email uh, in 98. Part of the reason is, first, we had no skills. And it would take too long, and we would go out of business building. So we had to sequence it. And so we only got started building email about 10, 12 years ago, actually 12 years ago. And uh, that's because by then we had enough resources and enough experience to attempt that problem. And even then, knowing that, it would still take a long time. Same thing with the spreadsheet. Same thing with our presentation software, our word processor, any of these. Some problems are easier. A CRM system is actually a technically easier than, for example, a spreadsheet. So you know this when you evaluate the technologies behind it. 
and so you which is actually why there are you know hundreds of crms in the world but only two or three spreadsheets in the world because technically it's a harder problem and so we balance between the technically hard problems which require long term investment and problems that are easier to solve and maybe there is a market but it's going to be also there will be a lot of people in that market then your question is can you penetrate that market for example what is your differentiation in that market in a spreadsheet the differentiation is building a product well then there is a market it's just the complexity is building the product well in a crm the challenge is well you have to build a product that's a challenge but you also have to find a market because there will be 500 crms in the market so we evaluate all those and then we commit resources and one of the things in zoho is when we commit to something after evaluation we stick to it we stick to it we only exit something under the condition that we don't see any opportunity here it's not only that we don't see an opportunity that probably the market doesn't exist or it's going away and in that case we will shift our resources elsewhere but if we continue to see a market opportunity even if we have not cracked it we stick to it. that's something that uh, we are good at doing and this this has two benefits one is well smart engineers want to crack a problem and if you bring in too much of the the bean counter thinking in it then they you know it's i'll evaluate it in 3 years if i'm not making money i'll cancel it you actually that's not a very good way to retain world class talent smart engineers want to continue to work on hard problems and solve them that's what gives you satisfaction as an engineer and if you don't retain the smart engineers then you don't build the depth of the technologies i talked about and so they want the assurance of a company that will stand by them i mean that's true in our spreadsheet that's true in our email that's true in our word processor that's true in our crm that's true in our ai all of them that we get into a project then we stick to it in spite of a lot of challenges meaning there are you know email system our very first 5 or 6 years we would have considered ourselves a failure complete failure we didn't make any impact in the market but maybe the eighth year things started happening i mean think about that from a startup perspective that's you know first 5 years we failed and eighth year is when things started to pick up and we have that kind of patience here and that is something explicitly communicated we actually tell people and i when we started email i told people this will probably take 10 years easily to master if you don't have that patience you shouldn't be in this you know if you don't have that mental patience the stamina to go through this endurance you shouldn't be in this and that is then people get with that mindset then we know along the way we we face challenges so that is how we build think that's how we allocate so we pick some that are there is a market and the challenge is not as difficult maybe easier to penetrate into the market some that are there's a market but it's much harder we mix it up because we cannot only do very hard things because even we don't have infinite budgets and infinite timelines so we have to mix it so that is a lot of our philosophy is the mixture of these two things that are we are able to uh, crack a market in a shorter duration and things that will take we know will take longer and we have to persist
lot of this philosophy is not i mean it's not unique to zoho in a way i i'd say we learned a lot of these watching uh, 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 honda or uh, nikon or sony these companies and see that i'm i'm under samsung or hyundai too and these stations have actually the virtual patients and this patient engineering and uh, in india we have my opinion aped the west too much particularly america too much my opinion i live in silicon valley so i know the both the strengths and the weaknesses the weakness is the short termist thinking in this very few companies i mean very few companies stay in the long haul and we have taken more inspiration from the japanese on these than from the americans so on this in this particular area how do uh, teams work inside so uh, shridhar and i'm asking that question because you are no more few dozen member team you have more than 5000 uh, around that so so how do things work when it comes to people how do pe- you ensure that their teams collaborating why are things not falling apart i mean maybe i'm way to ask well the things are not falling apart because we have a strong managerial uh ladder who people who know their teams who know their domains and i'll tell you where things fall apart from my observation when you have a lot of turnover in leadership then there is no continuity i mean you when you change the head of a team every year then you don't have much of a team basically so you are rebuilding a team every year so there isn't much value that's going to come from that the thing is you are lot of prevailing management dogma as as coming from a harvard business school or the or the usual business school ideology is that you professionalize all of these using the word professional to me that word itself is problematic because it communicates that you have a bundle of skills and experience minus the human persona but the, there is no real person it's it's a resume it's a bundle of skills right and when you manage that way when you manage teams that way and your manager is that way well you don't have the the spirit that in it anymore the spirit left the team and that's when long term they fall apart so the reason so runs is it's not because i run everything i cannot i mean this this over 100 120 independent teams here maybe 150 and that and there's no way that i can run even a small fraction of them i don't therefore i don't but that means that those teams are run by somebody and that somebody has to have uh, sort of the staying power and the passion the commitment all of that and and then that's communicated to the team so that is how it runs and it's not perfect right people always will have differences and and no two people can ever agree on everything even that's true and even in a marriage right no two people can ever agree on 100% on everything so our set of managers won't agree on with each other or even agree with me on everything but we agree on some core things i mean why are we here why are they here why and those are things that there is a underlying sort of philosophical agreement on those then the execution will vary by teams and that's perfectly fine different people run differently 
somewhat and all of that variation is very much part of the Zoho experience. One of the things, I mean, when the first time I discovered Zoho was the Zoho University concept. And, and, and that stays uh, in my mind as your key differentiator and I still continue to hear about it. Can you take us through that journey, Sridhar? Uh, it used to be kind of an experiment very early. Where are you on, on that front now? It's uh, going strong. Now we are this year, what, about 120 students and we have multiple streams now. We have a design university, we have now uh, even for marketing, there's a university, all of that have started. So it's expanding and it also, geographically we have expanded the University to Tenkasi operation there. So it's going strong and actually now we are seeing more and more interest from students. It used to be that we have to go persuade students. Now there is a clamor to get in. So it's becoming, we have to now you know, look for, evaluate candidates, all of that. It used to be that we go and persuade kids to join. Now they are coming in larger and larger numbers. So we are looking to expand it. Our goal is to maybe go to you know, meet at least 30, 40% of our uh, needs through Zoho University. That's the goal. What does that mean for Zoho as a company in its fabric of things, right? I, you know, I like to go back to the source of things, source of ideas, the foundation. And uh, one of the reasons we also built the university Honestly, yes, I, I, mean, I have a PhD, but I very much consider myself, uh, in a way, I identify with a person like Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest who launched the Reformation. So he became the founding father of Protestantism, right? Protestant Reformation. And that is, that's an important thing. I, I'm, I'm a trained PhD academic priest. I'm trained in the priesthood. But I actually no longer believe in the mission of the conventional university as it stands today. I don't believe in it, honestly, because it has gone off the rails, in my opinion. In multiple different dimensions, it's gone off the rails. But speaking of engineering, where what we do, I'll say it's gone off the rails because even when it's done well, we talk uh, good university, forget the ones that are not good, even when it's done well, it's become way too abstract. The engineering professors mostly worship mathematical models with less and less attachment to the real world, how things are. When you, you would take an electrical engineering professor, but they mostly are cranking out math. They're not actually electrical engineering anymore. And computer science, it has become there. It's computer science and software engineering are decoupled in many ways. So I want to bring attach that to the reality of software. Computer science and software have to go together. The math is important, but the reality is vitally important. You cannot detach the, the, the field from the, you know, the practice. So that is the mission of the university. So it's contextual, experiential education that is tethered in the reality. Because we produce software, so we understand software problems. So the software education reflects our understanding of these problems. With now we are hiring actually faculty. You know, people who are trained, even there are even PhDs now working in Zoho University, but with the, they understand the mission. The mission is to, to bring that, the tether that theory, theory to the ground of practice. That's important. So that's, the, that's one of the reasons we do it. 
in other liberal arts, all of that, my critique is that today we have pretty much, to me, a liberal arts curriculum in the U.S. is basically Marxism in disguise. Okay, and uh, the the basically that's and, and I I'm not uh, much of a fan of that. That ideology has killed tens of millions of people, maybe a hundred million people in the 20th century. But there are still people who worship at it, and they don't understand the roots of some of the people. They may be spouting ideas that are basically Marxism in disguise, but they don't even know it. That's how deeply it is entrenched in the 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 liberal arts academia. So. But I actually believe in liberal arts. I'm actually, I have philosophy, all of this. I say we have to go back to Buddha, we have to go back to Aristotle, we have to go back to Plato, and ignore a lot of the claptrap that has come in the last 100, 150 years in the Western academy, in particular now. And we in India ape Harvard in this. So we don't actually, we are not very independent thinkers on this. And I don't want to have any truck with them. So. If you have to produce all this, so to me, Zoho University also part of it is the, the I, I plan to teach philosophy at some point. And again, we probably will hire philosophers at some point. So the teaching liberal arts, all of this, but in a different way than what they do in what the university. Again, so this is why I said, this is very much like the Protestant Reformation, and the Reformation is against this institution called the modern academic university, particularly the Western model that is that we are aping here for the most part. I, I agree. I think it holds true. Let's shift to uh, something more worldly. How does Zoho make money? And, and help me understand uh, the, the engine, uh, the philosophy behind making money. How do products make money at Zoho? So we, we have over 100 products now. So some of them make more money than others. It's always a mix of them. And it depends on our, again, this is all my philosophy is worth nothing if we don't actually make money as a company. right? That keeps it grounded. I mean, even I cannot have flights of philosophical fancy unless we ground it in actually building a business and having to pay for all of this, right? That's a good discipline to have, always. In, in the same thing in, uh, I said about the mathematical models and the reality. All of these, again. And this is part of my critique of academia itself, that you are not grounded in reality anymore. It's become too abstract, too untethered to anything real. And so if you look at our products, we have uh, a mixture of the, uh, uh, some things that are easier to crack markets, some things that are harder, and we persist on them. And we... Initially, early days, we tried to find opportunities where we could sell over the internet because we don't have a, a field sales force. We don't have a brand, any of those. Could we sell over the internet? That's how we specialized in. But more and more, we have now the resources to actually also build a sales force, build all of these. So we are moving up the chain in this. We still, of course, a lot of it is on the internet, our websites in a lot of traffic. That is how we uh, bring in the business, but complemented with also a sales force and all of those things. So that is how that we make money. And the key here is always, you know, in business, you have to figure out product management is a challenge of making what people want, as Paul Graham put it. And 
how do you figure that out? And there is not any secret formula or recipe for it. I mean, we have been known to fail. We have been known to guess wrong, all this, and then having to change course, all of that. It happens all the time. So it always begins with you look at a market opportunity and you see what is the state of the market now, who are the players in it, and can we make a difference here? What is our angle? What is our opportunity here? And can we build it in reasonable time or reasonable budget? Can we price it attractively? Can we attract customers? What is the marketing challenge, all of this? And then go in after some deliberative process. We, we, we don't do this lightly, but we don't sit and overanalyze either. It's, a, it's moderation, moderate analysis. <laughs> all, all things in moderation, right? You, you don't want to just randomly go off in 100 different directions, but you don't want to analyze it to death where you are paralyzed. You never actually do anything. So you, want, you need moderation. And that's how we start new ideas. Like the, you know, any of the product we launched in the last year, you consider them the... Uh, so flow, right? That's an example. We looked at the integration problem and we saw what we can do there, and we invested in the product. We launched it, and the market seems to agree, and we are, you know, starting to find customers all of that. And we generally tend to be patient. Whenever we launch, we don't expect instant results. We are patient, and that patience, the luxury of patience, comes from operating financially conservatively. So it goes hand in hand. And a different person maybe would have expanded the company sooner, faster, 10 years ago, all of that. And that's, you know, people have criticized us for it, and, but it suits us. I mean, there's not a one way. And because there is, I have been of a, you know, I'm perhaps a, the, the person that comes to mind in this is like Warren Buffett. He's a good example. He is known as the, course, the leading investor in the world. But did he take outsized risks to get there? No, he did not. Actually, he would say that the whole, my job is to minimize risk, not maximize risk taking, minimize it. <laughs> and there's some of that in me. In fact, uh, probably in 97, 98, I studied Warren Buffett quite a bit. Not that we are not investors in this, but in business, you also have to have that idea because you are investing in something and that either pays off or doesn't pay off. So I am more of a uh, take calculated risk. We still have to take risks, but we don't take those outsized bet everything in one kind of risk. Is that good or bad? I mean, that's the way we are. I mean, can you say Warren Buffett is bad? I mean, his, his track record over 40 years is extremely good. In the same way, our track record now after 20 years, we can say 22 years, it's the compounding effect is visible now. So when you say people are noticing no goal, it's the, like we have, it has compounded all these years. Now the compounding effect is visible. Now it's compounding at a rate at which it becomes more and more visible. But the fundamental thing has not changed how we are doing this. And uh, so that's why we, and, and if you want to be a Warren Buffett, you still have to give yourself the time and the patience. Otherwise, you are a trader, and you know, trading has its own dharma. And 
some people make money in trading but i believe that reliably even if your intention is to make money if you have patience and you are warren buffett like perseverance patience then you probably end up more successful long term that's what i would say he's a proof yeah, <laughs> living proof yeah you never talk about how much money you really make is there a again the philosophy behind it a reason i mean of course people can dig into your yeah they can way. and uh, we part of it is you know we it's we're doing well enough and i myself don't obsess about it i myself uh, live i live I, i live comfortably enough and i don't need any more so and i don't need the publicity for those things i discourage such uh you know because that's not my focus and so it's not interesting to me so that's why we don't talk about it but we are doing well enough i mean i'd say that it's it's in going in a good direction and we are now at 5000 plus people and uh, and that compounding effect is now more visible yeah. and we should continue to do this in the next 10 20 years and so that's the goal the, uh, the ad campaigns you were talking about yeah it it seemed to be uh, quite a shift in the way though is being over many years that we have known um some people said are you uh, preparing or ready for an ipo no. or, or how what what how what to make we, of it we 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 advertise so that we because we believe that now we have actually our advertising campaign is for a very simple reason we are reaching a much bigger mass market and so we are using all the mass market media and, and the tools available that's it it's simple there's no ipo there's no ipo coming so i can assure you <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh shoulda the other one of the final one or two things i have to ask you thanks for this long and engaging conversation uh, how do you get users for the products you build again very simplistic question but i'm i'm trying to understand uh how do you get them hooked how do you get them to pay yeah. for things you build so we i mean in zoho now we, everybody can come and sign up and we get lots and lots of sign ups now and that's part of why we advertise too because we we can probably have 10 times more users we are at 40 billion we could have 400 million right easy <laughs> easily so that's why we advertise and do all of these and we as our our reach grows i mean we are reaching out into more more of the uh, software needed to get work done naturally it attracts more users and then the brand becomes more visible so that is how we are getting it and it's also compounding on itself i mean if you look at 10 years ago the number of users we attracted versus today can you see that tremendous growth in all of these the products have become more mature the market is more accepting of SaaS cloud solutions all of these are so this is both the, our products have gotten better the market is more accepting and ready so that's part of why we are also running these campaigns because there is no massive opportunity we see so that's how we get the user having said this i'll say this one of the challenges today for a for a new new product is that you already have established SaaS players and so it becomes harder to attract those users that'll be true even when we launch a new product that's true it's not this not this rule same thing apply but we have a zoho brand and we are using those things but it's the same thing will be true 
that when you launch a new product, it's not trivial to attract users or customers for it. Particularly if you are in an established market with a lot of other players who are also doing marketing development. Like Google, for example, Google, uh, you know, the keywords become more expensive now, all of those. So that those challenges are common to everyone in the industry. Follow-up question to this, Sridhar, is that most of the products that you have built uh, or the problems that you are solving uh, have been solved. You know, there, there, is, there, there are companies with offerings. In, in going forward, having done what you have done so far, would you look at solving something unsolved or would you look at creating a market? It's, uh, you know, again, for example, Zoho Creator was a tool that there wasn't a product like that when we launched. Now there are some products. They came after we came. And so we actually ended up pioneering that market where you create business apps online, online business apps online. We launched it, remember, in 2006. So at that time, not, nothing like that existed. So, and the second, you look at Zoho One, the whole operating system for business. I mean, no one, not even Microsoft, and not Google, not Salesforce, no one offers the breadth and depth of what we offer. And we are putting all this together. So the key today to us, productivity in work, is how you integrate a lot of these data in your organization. How do you enable people to collaborate seamlessly and bring the collaboration part and the data part, like the CRM, all that together? So today, if you see uh, the product portfolios, you have the whole collaborative documents to chat, all of that. And then you have the business apps. They've never come together. We are the ones bringing all that together. So that is new innovation. And we are knitting all these together. And so in that sense, we are actually there's quite a bit of innovation going on. And we are also building some new things that are, our goal is to revolutionize the way even software is built. Those are things that we are working on. But those are longer term. Maybe, you know, they may never launch. It depends on what internally we feel. But we are betting on a lot of these technology things here, technology trends, and we see data centers, we see some opportunities there. So there's a lot of such efforts going on, there's a lot of R&D going on. I mean, we are hiring more than 1,000, 1,500 engineers a year now. That gives us a lot of R&D potential, yeah. Final two questions. Mm -hmm. uh, the, how do you look at artificial intelligence? Is it like a threat to the whole SaaS model, like some of some people are, are beginning to read at it. What does it, will it be existential threat? Would, I mean, I don't know, how, how do you look, wrap your head around something like that? Well, it, uh, first it is, it's going to give you more insights from your own data that you have. And there is automation of some manual tasks on that. I myself am not an AI pessimist where it's going to replace all human beings, any of this, because I, I have more uh, uh, faith in the creativity of the human being to come up with more and more ways to employ ourselves. Basically, we have always figured out that. So I'm not a pessimist that way. And ultimately, let's say that you know AI replaces every job. That means that every good has to be 
cheap or free because AI produced them, robots produce the goods. So it's only a question of then distribution. And, and, and there are many creative ways to, to solve those problems. It's not, I don't believe that these are insurmountable problems. That's an economic, political policy question and not a technical question. I mean, already as it is compared to say 200 years ago, a lot of us don't do the back-breaking kind of work anymore. 200 years ago, work meant back-breaking work. I mean, today, what we do, like my grandmother wouldn't have considered work. <laughs> right? Honestly, she wouldn't have thought what we do is work, what I do is work. So we will invent new forms of such work and that will keep us engaged. I don't believe that. I'm, I'm not a pessimist on that. And if I say, you know, if goods and services become cheaper, that's good. But there is a different issue, that is that a lot of modernity now, postmodernity, say, is creating a lot of, I mean, you see that drug abuse crisis in America, there's depression, growing depression. These are problems that are, it, it, sometimes it's linked to technology progress, but I don't believe that. I believe that it has to do with our social institutions or the, the failure of those institutions, rather, I'd say. So those are the challenges. How do you, you know, we can have all the goods, we can have all the uh, goodies in life, but are we happy? That's a different question, and that is, I'm more concerned about that. I'm not worried that AI will destroy all our jobs and enslave us. That's not my concern. But are we killing ourselves in, uh, in other words, there is the George Orwell world and the brave new world. I'm more worried about the brave new world because we are heading to the brave new world. <laughs> We're not heading to 1984. I'm not. I'm less worried about that. I'm worried about the brave new world scenario. <laughs> but we are drugged into some kind of a stupor. <laughs> yeah, that's a better way of looking at it. But for SaaS itself, as as an industry, you think? It could be a disruption. I mean, there could be some other uh, possible, but you know, we have to adapt. We are investing in AI to build, and there could be even software that builds software. For example, all of those could happen. And but we, you know, keep figuring out. I mean, think this way: if software becomes so cheap to build, it becomes free. That's the worst case, right? For a SaaS company, it becomes free. We have to figure out something else to do. And I'm hopeful that we will figure that out at that time, when, when the challenge arises. Because it's, it's always happens. I mean, you, if the, a good example, right? The data center operating system is free. We use Linux, 100%. It's free. You don't pay anybody. That didn't mean there are you know, dearth of software engineering jobs. <laughs> it just moved to some other part of the stack, right? The jobs moved somewhere else. Same thing with all the SaaS applications become free because, you know, maybe AI yeah, built them. You know, there would be some other layer where there will be jobs. So we have to figure out where, uh, what that layer is and go there. So, so I'm not a pessimist. Okay. Final uh, question. Uh, what, give, give me a science fiction view of uh, where you see Zoho, say, you know, in the decade or, or few decades. Well, I can maybe see. We continue to invest in technologies and we are deepening our tech stack all the way down and up, all of those, and then sideways, all of that. And we are investing in some adjacencies. And 
Argon is to become the, the leading tech company out of India. Put India on the global tech map as a leading tech company. And we are making progress steadily. And that is, and we will see as we, one thing that I'll see as we make more and more money, it will get invested in more and more of these projects. Because I don't need money. I'm not going to live it up. So that clarity means that's actually one of the reasons I didn't take external investors because I'm not really excited by giving them a return because I myself don't need a return. <laughs> so if I didn't have to answer to them, then I can invest it as I see fit and I don't worry about it. But if I have to take on external investors, my fiduciary duty is to provide them a return and that complicates matters. So let's say I want to invest in a crazy project to, to build a, a flying car. I don't know. It might, I mean, we had a couple of billion lying around. We don't. But suppose we have a couple of billion lying around. It would be not convenient for the investor for us to be wasting money like that. Or at least they would think wasting money, right? But that's the, kind, that's the reason why I don't want to take it public. Because then I, I my duty bound to serve that investor, which is fair. I mean, it's fair. I'm not contesting it, but I stay out of it because I don't want to take on that duty. <laughs> I prefer this way. So this way, then we get to invest in whatever we see is interesting. So we'll continue to invest if our circumstances permit. I mean, that means that if our prosperity grows, we'll continue to invest. So and that will yield a lot of interesting ideas and constant experimentation going on. Thank you, Sridhar. You know, <laughs> I don't know at what point in time the intersection between you as a businessman, a philosopher, uh, you know, an ideologist or, you know, your Warren Buffet kind of principle start uh, blurring and then colluding together. It's, uh, I know, it's all package, right? I, I'm, I, you cannot separate those. I mean, I bring a certain, to me, a businessman has to be a philosopher. Steve Jobs was a philosopher. Jeff Bezos is a philosopher. If you, if you go read what he says, there is a philosophical truth behind it. Steve Jobs is clearly a philosopher. I mean, it's absolutely clear. And so, in, you have to have some philosophical idea. Of why are we here? That question is a philosophical question. This is not a scientific question. And for each each company and each person has to figure out their own answers. It's not like whatever I say applies to everybody else. By the way, that is something that I want to make very clear. That these, all these, I, I consider the philosophical proposition that all of these truths are contextual. It works for us, it's relevant for us. It doesn't mean it will work for everybody or relevant for everybody. So I don't want to be giving advice that way. That's part of the reason why I stay out of the advice business because I know that each person has to figure out their truth. It's not, I cannot impose a truth on them. Thank you. Stay that way, Sridhar. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. As always.